Welcome to The Data Station. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. If you have followed LinkedIn or Substack influencers in the data space, you've probably come across Pedram Navid. He is a really smart guy, has written some really helpful articles on lots of data-related things. I actually found his content researching several topics before meeting him. And we got the chance to meet him and invited him on the show. And I'm super excited to chat with him, Casas. He started out in finance and the financial world with data and then was at several startups in the Bay Area, most recently High Touch. And now he's running his own consultancy. So where am I going to start with my questions? <laughs> That's a difficult part. I think one thing that I do really want to dig into with him, which we haven't talked a ton about on the show, is data stacks at early stage companies. You know, we've talked with a lot of startup founders who have created startups, especially in the data space, obviously. We've talked with a lot of data practitioners at various sizes of companies. But I don't know if we've talked with many data practitioners who have done this at multiple very early stage startup companies in the SaaS space. And so I think that's a really helpful thing to think through for me and for a lot of our listeners by getting an opinion from someone who's done this multiple times over about what do you actually need in that stage as a company in terms of your data stack? And then the other question I want to ask is, are you thinking about scale? You know, because generally startups need to become hyper growth or at least that's the plan. So those are my two big questions. What does the data stack look like? And then how do you think about building it in a way that can scale, you know, if you hit the jackpot? Yeah. For me, I want to start with learning for, from him, like what's the difference between working in a very hard and regulated industry like finance, where he initially was working at, and then going and working like in a series A startup. What is yeah, the... that's huge. And also what is helpful to keep from the work on a big and probably bureaucratic like organization when you go and work in a chaotic environment, like a series A pre post product market fit, but pre growth, let's say a stage company where things are like change. But it would be awesome to hear from him, like what he found useful from his experience in doing that. That's one thing. And the other thing is that Pedro is like exposed to all the new things that are happening in these industries. Like yep. to hear from him, like what's his take and opinion on some technologies like Dr. B, for example. Oh or, yeah. Uh, this whole thing of, okay, let's scale out or scale up and what we should do with infrastructure and how we should process our data. So yeah, let's, uh, let's start with him. Let's do it. Pedram, welcome to the Data Sack Show. It's been a long time coming. Thanks. 
Glad to be here. All right. Well, we'll start where we always do. Give us your background, especially the parts about how you got into data in the first place. So, old story now. I started at a bank a long, long time ago, and we had data coming in from a vendor through PowerPoint slides and had two columns on it, one for this month and one for last month. And that was all the data we had. Yeah. And every month they would send us a new PowerPoint slide, replacing one column with the other. And so I think my boss asked, is there a way where we can kind of figure out what's going on month by month over a trend? And so I would hand copy this data from PowerPoint to Excel. One thing led to another and I built a dashboard. Eventually I learned VBA because I got tired of doing things manually. And that was really the gateway drug into the rest of my career. Mm. Python, R, data science, all that happened through the span of 12 years. Then I moved to the Bay Area and I thought, you know, in a banking, let's jump into startup life, worked at a few different startups and the data scientists, eventually the data engineer, because I thought data science just took too long to get results. And one thing led to another. And most recently I ended up at high touch as their head of data, doing data marketing and product. Oh, so many questions. Okay. One thing from the early part of the story, were you, so it sounds like you sort of went through your learnings, you know, sort of, you know, VBA, you know, through to Python and then, you know, other subsequent you know, subsequent languages and methodologies there. Were you doing all that at a bank? And if so, were you sort of teaching yourself and bringing that technology into the bank? And the reason I ask is, you know, traditionally we think about banks as sort of being resistant to sort of technological change, especially if they're getting data, you know, delivered in PowerPoint. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about that journey and how, you know, brought those technologies in or, I mean, what was that like? It was difficult to say the least. So VBA was allowed because Microsoft Excel was allowed. And so you were allowed to use that. I learned VBA, yeah, on my own, painfully, slowly. I think as most people learn it, I doubt many people go to school for VBA. So that was just the beginning. And then I, as I was searching, I found about this thing called Python. And I probably wasn't supposed to download it to my bank laptop, but I did. And so that helped a little bit with the automation. And again, it was all really self-driven, self-taught, just trying to solve problems I didn't want to do myself. It was like purely motivated by laziness. And I mean, I think to this day, that's still the driving factor behind what I do. <laughs> I love it. I was being scared. As we move towards things like R to actually do real business modeling and analysis, that's when I got the most resistance. We were doing like compensation modeling for 12,000 employees in Microsoft Excel. And we were passing down this oh. one spreadsheet back and forth. And FTP? No, email. Oh, email. Man. <laughs> email. Maybe SharePoint if you were lucky. So. <laughs> As it's moving through hands, everyone's changing these models. They're dragging and dropping and stuff is changing and things are breaking that no one knows, obviously, right? And six months go by, you've rolled out your competition model. 
And then you got to figure out why the numbers aren't right. And you go back and you find that some guy accidentally filled the wrong column in a spreadsheet. Or even worse, your executive would change their mind on what the package should look like every five minutes. And then you go back and update 50 mm. different apps, try to recalculate things. So I thought there must be a better way. I learned about this thing called R. I was learning about data science on the side. And so I thought, what if I put all this logic into code instead of into workbook and try to automate some of this work? Our VP was very, very upset. He did not like it. He thought R was a black box. And I realized what he was mad about wasn't using R. He just wanted a spreadsheet. So mm. I would do all the work in R and then just output it to a spreadsheet at the end of the day and give it to him. Oh, here. <laughs> you can still have that. And then everything was fine. So yeah, it was, it was always a work of, like, you know, appeasing your stakeholders that never end. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's such a good insight. It's funny to hear. It's funny to hear the concept of R being a black box because, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth, but. Completely yeah. open source. Yeah. Per perception is, perception is reality. No, that's super helpful. Okay, well, let's, so then let's fast forward to move to the Bay Area. You were involved in multiple startups, most recently High Touch, and did a bunch of data stuff at early stage startups. So, you know, in our chat beforehand, you were saying, you know, sort of, you know, seed to series A, you know, stage of those companies. And one thing I'm really interested in that I've wanted to ask you for a while is what your take is on what the data stack at an early stage startup should look like. And, you know, there are a couple of motivating factors. One, I'm selfishly interested because, you know, I'm involved with that every day. But it's not something we've talked about on the show a ton. You know, we've talked with people running startups, running data startups. You know, we've talked with enterprises, but we haven't really honed in on, okay, you're a really early stage company. You know, what does your data stack look like? And then, well, I'll follow up with part B of the question, but yeah. So your series A, you know, sort of late seed stage and you're running data at that company. What do you actually need? Uh, and I can't just say it depends, right? <laughs> well, just explain the... Just explain what the dependencies are. Yeah, let's say, all right. My, mo my motivating factor whenever I do these things is I need something that I don't need to babysit and I'm willing to trade off costs for engineering time because I'm just one person. And again, I'm very lazy, but I'm also probably busy doing other things. I need something that just works. And I think... In those early stage startups, your data is usually not very big. Yep. Right. And I might say be blasphemy, but I might argue that your data is not that valuable when you're first mm. starting out. It's good can to you have. Can you unpack that a little bit more? I yeah. think I agree with you, but I, but that's a but I think that's really helpful. If we are, if the goal of data is to help drive decisions. At an early stage company, you, your data, you don't have that much data, right? Because there's not much happening yet. And you probably know every customer you have. Yep. And you probably know 
how you closed that deal and where you got it from. So what are you really learning from a really complex data stack right now? You're not building models. You're not scoring leads. You're not doing marketing attribution. At the end of the day, you're maybe counting revenue and maybe the number of customers. That's really the value when you're first starting out. Now, it's good to start with that stuff because as those complex questions build over time, having a nice foundation can make sure. it easier to answer those things. But probably don't need to invest, unless like data is your product, you probably don't need to invest a ton into your data stack in the early days. No, that makes sense. I think, you know, one specific example of that I've experienced multiple times is that things like multi-touch attribution are extremely powerful, but you actually have to have a pretty huge amount of data and generally a lot of paid programs running in order for a multi-touch attribution model to really be additive in terms of shifting marketing budget, right? And when you're not spending yeah. a ton of money, you know, you can spend a lot of time developing a model that might be accurate at the end of the day. You know, it's like, well, okay, we're going to move you know, 10 grand, you know, from this bucket to this bucket, it's not, you right. know, not a huge deal. That's super interesting. Okay. How about scale though, right? Because in an ideal world, these early stage startups, you know, hit hyper growth and scale really quickly, you know, and when that happens, like tons of stuff breaks across the company, you know, which is just the way that things go. And, you know, people have to fix all sorts of stuff, you know, from org charts to data stack. So how do you think about that aspect of it, right? Like early on, you want something that just works. It's a small team. Does, do the tools available scale? How do you think about that side of it? That is a really good question. So if you look up, let's go through the whole stack. On the ingest side, there's a few options, like your five cran, there's your air bites and so on. And those, I mean, that scales as long as your wallets are deep, right? Yep. So that's probably fine when you're first starting out because you don't want to invest too heavily into that. And you just, it's hard to anyway. So that is something you can always take down the road and decide, do we want to keep using this or should we build something internally sure. to help reduce cost? You right? can pay to push that decision off. Exactly. Yeah. Until it's too painful and then you can deal with it. On the data warehouse side, you're probably not going to go wrong with Snowflake or BigQuery. You probably don't need Databricks, I would assume. And you can't see a good reason to use Redshift anymore. You're probably fine. I mean, I doubt you'll hit scaling limits with Snowflake again. BigQuery is a bit more questionable, but again, that's you really got to be pushing numbers to, to be hitting problems there. And what else do you need? There's DBT for modeling, which sure, you'll probably hit again limits there. But if you're at the scale where you're hurting yourself through what's capable through that stack, then you've got really good problems. Like you must have a ton <laughs> of data and a ton of testing. And you can just throw engineers at it at that point. So it would welcome that issue. If the stack I built today doesn't really scale, then that's great. Let's hire more yep. people and fix it. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I think I'm thinking about some of our 
you know, large customers and yeah, you have to be at a pretty big scale to sort of, you know, I'm thinking about ones that have migrated off, you know, Redshift into, you know, almost going fully onto like data lake infrastructure, right? But you're talking about like unbelievable, unbelievable scale when you sort of outpace like, you know, basic warehouse stuff, which is super interesting. You could probably get away with Postgres if you really wanted to, the data warehouse in the early yeah. days, right? That's probably what you will hit limits on. So that's where I think maybe just go with Snowflake and hope you don't. But if you're cost conscious and you just want something cheap and simple, Postgres is pretty strong, powerful. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, other than the tools that you just mentioned, and then I'll pass the mic over to Costas because, of course, like the rhythm of the show is that I monopolize and then he does. What are the nice to haves for you? Right. So I understand like the core infrastructure. So you have ingest, you have warehousing, you have a modeling layer, you know, in the early stage, that's all you need. Are there any sort of, okay, you have a larger budget than you expected. So I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to do some quality of life or some, do you have any preferences around things that you would add to that stack? I don't believe in quality of life for the native team. I just haven't seen one that like increases my quality of life enough to justify the expense. For me, it's much more like tactical, like planning out for the future. So I've got my basic data stack, probably going to need BI, right? So maybe we can start gonna, with- I like, was going to ask about that if you didn't mention yeah. it. You probably will need BI at some point. Maybe you start with like a superset because it's pretty cheap and free. Maybe you decide you need a semantic layer because the demands on your team are growing high and then you move to a Looker or a LightDown. That's all. Those are all valid places to be. There's MetaBase. There's nothing wrong with any of those. I think those are all highly dependent on your team. I wouldn't call that a nice to have. You probably need it at some point. It's just like, when is the right time? Product Analytics is another one. So getting data from Rutterstack into Amplitude or any of the other ones out there. Feature adoption and sort of understanding. Yeah. Reputation growth, all that kind of funnel stuff. That, I mean, that's usually driven by demand, not by you just want to do for fun, right? So if your marketing team and your product teams are asking for this stuff, you got to find a solution. And the solution usually isn't writing SQL queries for funnels because nobody wants or knows how to do that. Instead, you give them something self-serve. That's kind of how I look at it. Everything else just seems, I don't know. I need something motivating for me to go get it. There's like data quality is always the one people talk about. There's catalog, there's metadata. Those all seem nice to have, but would I go out and spend my marketing or my data dollars on it? Yeah. Not unless I had a pressing need. Yeah. Would you throw sort of orchestration tools into that bucket? I mean, I think about the cataloging and orchestration. Again, we're talking about early stage startups here. We're not talking about the ability yeah. of these tools in general, right? Because at scale, like obviously data teams are running all these things, but the cataloging piece and the orchestration piece, I sort of see as realize a next level where you have a growing data team and you have a level of complexity where, you know, those have a lot more appeal, but in the early stages, like 
they they actually add more complexity in some ways than quality of life. A hundred percent. I mean, at the end of the day, how big is your data team, right? Do you really need a catalog when you're the one building every table? Catalogs in here, maybe, right? So, I mean, we can build a catalog and pretend that we'll put it in front of all our stakeholders and they'll go look at it. They never do. They never will. That's just not a thing that they're ever going to do. Data catalog is for the data team at the end of the day. And if I'm the data team, I don't really need one. Uh, yeah. Problems of scale are what those tools tend to address. In the early days, those aren't your problems, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, actually, one more one more question in that same train of thought. Sorry, Costas. Have you learned any lessons around like when to introduce or even how to introduce tooling? Because I think you make a really interesting point on something like a cataloging tool where you can take something that inherently like in and of itself is very useful, right? can be extremely useful to teams to drive data discovery, et cetera, like especially at scale. But you can introduce those in a way, especially to stakeholders without context in a way that really paints those tools in a bad light. Right? Or even, I mean, you could even think about in some cases like a tool like DBT, which you know feels ubiquitous to us in the industry, right? But can seem redundant to someone whose context is well, just write SQL right on your warehouse. You know, that that seems redundant, right? Have you learned any lessons on like when and how to introduce tooling in a way that, you know, sort of drives wider adoption if it's something that you have a lot of conviction about? Not talking about the quality of life stuff, but something you have conviction about? I don't know if I to be honest. I think the tooling I tend to introduce is always driven by demand at the end of the day. And so when I look at the tools that are more cross-functional, like no one cares about the tools I use internally. I mean, why would they? It's like caring whether or not someone's using Svelte. Like I, it doesn't matter what the engineering team uses. That's a concern for them. Most of the concerns for the data team are really data team concerns. No one cares if you're using PPT or not, or Snowflake or BigQuery. Like those are your sort of issues. I think where it becomes tricky is the stakeholder uh, tooling. So. Your BI layer is really that interface between your team and other teams. Cataloging is similar. It's that interface between your team and other teams. Although I would argue cataloging is really most useful within data teams. So that's really the way I look at it. And if it's something that external focus, like the amplitudes, like the axes and lookers and light dashes, that it's definitely a mutual discussion about what are your needs? What types of workflows are you going to use? And let's trial this POC together. Like, it will never be me just making a decision for everybody, but I want my stakeholders involved so that they have buy-in and they can see the value of the decisions we're making. Because at the end of the day, they'll be consuming this far more than I will. So let's make sure that they do. And for the most part, that's work. They tend to love the tools that we pick together. That's great. Well said. Wonderful advice. All right, Costas. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for giving me the microphone. So, Pedro, I have a question. It's been like, a, I don't know, like five, 10 years now that the, there is some kind of like explosion in terms of, I'm calling it like innovation or new products or whatever, like when it comes to working with data, right? We have a modern data stack. If you just take like a map, 
the modern data stack between all the different like products that it's like a lot, right? And you will hear about like, quality, about storage, modeling, semantic layers, I don't know, meta-semantic layers, whatever. There is one thing though that I don't hear that much and maybe it's my fault, but I love you, your thoughts on that because you are also coming, you came from a very regulated industry, banking, right? And you moved into like series A companies where obviously like things are like much more scrappy when it comes like to how we regulate access around data. But what's going on with like access control over the data that we have? Like how do we control what's going on with this data or who has access to that or how we share it? How do we process it? Or when someone comes and says, oh, I have the right to be forgotten or whatever, go and like every whatever Excel reference, like reference in an Excel document you have in your company, you have to remove me. So what have you seen there? What's your opinion? And is it my fault that I don't hear that much about that? It's definitely not your fault. I would blame the marketers on this one again. So they're not doing a great enough job of educating you. There are two companies I know of in this space. So it is not very big. Immuta, I think is one. And I just talked to one called Jetty today, actually, about this. And they're both trying to approach this, I guess, problem of access control and visibility into who has access to what. And the problem is there's just so many tools that you have to regulate access on. Yeah. Right. If you think of, you have your data in Snowflake and it goes into Looker, just those two tools. That's probably two completely different sets of ways of managing permissions. And it's not enough to manage it just on Snowflake and hope the rest works because of the way that permission is going to work. You might have access to finance data and Looker that you can expect. So getting that right, I think it's really hard. And I don't think many startups are actually thinking about it or worried about it. I think it's pretty open in the early days of who has access to data. And people tend to lock things down, not because of the regulatory side, but more because people aren't using the data correctly, at least in my experience. Yeah. Like I tend to default to having things open initially. And then that always backfires because everybody's going in and querying data, coming up with answers and they're always wrong. And they're asking you to check yeah. their grades for them. And you're like, ah, wait a minute. No, no one gets access anymore. That's the type of access control that we have for startups, really. Uh, banking is totally different. Obviously, it's very regulated to a incredible degree where it took, I think we had a typo on a field in a dashboard and I requested it to be fixed. And it was a three to four week estimate because it had to go through like a different team and you had to pay with brown dollars and it come back and get approved and all this stuff. It's like all these players just to fix a typo. So I never want to work in that environment again, but I, it's probably something we could learn about, you know, maybe caring a little bit more about who has access to what and how we manage permissions across the data stack for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think you made also like a very good point. It's not just about, I mean, it's not the data only, the overall resources around data that you have to govern somehow. And 
it's not only security or like privacy. It's also like how easily things can turn into a mess. Like I, I've seen, like when you, for example, you have a big engineering team and you give access like to everyone on the snowflake instance, like the things that will happen there. They're not good. Not good. Eric knows. Eric knows very well because I think one of the results of this policy was having a database named after his name on Snowflake. That bad boy is still in production. Really? So Eric oh, DB yeah. is still there. <laughs> Eric DB lives on. Eric DB, Eric DB will live on. I will give it up when better sack IPS. <laughs> But yes, so, yeah, DB still runs production dashboards. Wow. Yeah, because like after a while, like when you start having like many people getting served like from these resources, it's not that easy to decommission. Like it's definitely it's a nice incentive because they not everyone knows what how Snowflake charges you. They yeah. if you're doing a small query every five seconds. Oh, the data's small. How much could it cost? Well, it cost $20,000 over a year. So I, I think people will care about governance eventually at some point. And it's just like, how many times have you gotten burned before you do? Yeah. I didn't really care about governance at my first startup, but I certainly cared about it at my last one. You just, it's easy to see how things go wrong. People make mistakes. And no data team wants to be faced with another question about why two numbers don't match. Because this guy over there went and queried something and got what they thought was the right number. And now it's your job to go and unwind this 15-page query that they wrote to figure out why these two numbers are different. That's a very, very good point. And it brings me like to like to my next question. So, okay, resource management in general and like in a pretty complex like environment, it's not anything new in engineering, right? Just think about someone with like an SRE or like a DevOps, in a medium-sized like startup doing a WS. Like the complexity is just like crazy over there. That's why we have products like Classic or Terraform, for me, like all these things out there. So software engineering has like many years now that is dealing with complexity. It's and Complexity as part of productization, not just like complexity because the problem is complex at its root as a uh, science problem. There's a lot of like discussion about bringing, let's say, best practices from software engineering into the data space. Good example of that is DBT, for example, right? Like how it enables workflows and best practices from software engineering. Where do we stand with that? Do you think there's like more the like data teams can learn from software engineering? Is like data teams at the end should become just engineering, software engineering teams and just follow the same things? Or there's some kind of like space for the new paradigms there that are like, you know, applicable only for data teams? It is a really good question. Certainly DBT has helped, I think. I remember the old days where data teams, and many still do this, your SQL queries were saved in a text file on your desktop and 
there was no version control. You just had to ask someone how they ran something and they would send it to you by email, right? So we've come a long way, I would say, especially on the data modeling transformation side. A lot of the tools in the ecosystem are also moving towards that model, right? They're building in things like version control and declarative, like YAML configuration or how you set these things up. I think that's all great, but I do wonder if data teams themselves are sometimes missing the bigger picture of how these things work together. If I think back to the older data engineering types of people, they tended to come in through more technical backgrounds, right? They came in through computer science or software engineering, and they learned about all the trade-offs there were between, you know, performance and how data moves between systems and what it means for data to use a cache or to go to your drive or disk or to go through the network and what all those things meant for response stacks. That type of stuff, I think most engineers kind of understand and know well. And then all the associated stuff that comes around it with like deploying Docker containers, Kubernetes and all this. It was kind of like they learned this stuff because they had to. And I think knowing it has been really helpful. I do think there's a lot of people coming up data outside of that. And maybe they haven't had exposure to that side of the world. And I, I do see it sometimes biting us a little bit when we're starting to move data into what is really a productionized setting without some of that understanding of what software engineers have learned over the years. That's so maybe our tooling is good. But I don't think the conversation about how we think about moving that stuff around has really happened yet. What does it mean to query data in Snowflake? Like, how does that actually work? And what does it mean to transfer data outside of regions? And what does that look like in cost and that type of thing? So I think that type of stuff we still need to maybe do a better job of. It's still early days, but when you look at it from five years ago, we definitely come a long way. Okay. Do you think it's tooling that is missing or let's say knowledge or best practices? I think the tooling is actually pretty good these days. It's really best practices. It's knowledge. And I think it's learning from each other. Yeah. We don't tend to talk too much about this stuff, right? When I look at the talk people do in data, it's Sometimes about the tooling itself, but it's rarely about how we like move stuff into production or how we thought about different trade-offs in terms of performance characteristics. Like that type of questioning doesn't come up enough in my mind versus some of the other type of talks we're having right now. Okay. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Actually. How can we change that? Better conferences, more collective processes. I should be writing more about this stuff too. Like I'm just as guilty as anyone else. It is happening. People are asking questions. Jacob Madsen, for example, he created the modern data stack in a box not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And that project is off. I really see work with him to build Docker and Kubernetes into it. So if that's something you want to learn more about, you should check out. It's GitHub repo. It has all that stuff in there. It's still early days, but I mean, 
hopefully this is part of that conversation too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned like conferences. Do you have any favorite conference out there? Like any, I don't know, like conference that's you really got a lot of value, not from the networking part and like all these things, but also like from, you know, like the content that was created and how it was delivered as part of the conference. On the data side, not a ton. I am really jealous of some of the like software engineering conferences that I see out there. Like PyCon, for example, has always been really good. Our studio used to have a good conference a few years back. I think less so now it's become much more ecosystem platform focused. I think all conferences kind of like just end up that way at some point if they're run by a vendor, though, maybe that's just inevitable. Normcomp, I have to give a shout out to that one. That looks really good by Vicky Boykis. That's coming up in a few weeks, actually. So it's free. It's online, like 18 hours long. So definitely check that one out. A lot of good people are talking to that one. That's cool. Well, some great resources. Cool. And okay. Next, my next question is about, you mentioned when you were talking with, uh, with Eric about starting and was like the data stack like for, for a new company and like the scale you are at, there is, it's or at least it feels like there is some kind of change in the mindset of people in the industry right now, instead of going and using systems that scale out, like to try and build like systems that scale up, right? And I think like a very good example of that's that tactic bit, right? Something that you can run locally, it's going to fry your CPU because it's going to use like every last register of the last core in there, like to process data and people are interested in that. What's your, like, what's your take on that? Like, how do you feel about it? I'm still trying to figure it out. I think is my take. I really like that TP. I use it locally a lot, but to me, it's like SQLite, like a great tool for the right context, but you rarely will deploy an application using SQLite. You probably move to Postgres, right? Or MySQL. But it could be great to have SQLite for your test cases because it'll run faster. You don't have to set up infrastructure. Like that's fine. Stuff PB to me feels like it's either middleware within someone else's application stack or a great tool to use locally because you don't want to move data around. That mm-hmm. totally makes sense. But if your production data is in your cloud data warehouse, I don't know how bringing it locally to your laptop is going to solve any of that. It's a tough argument to make. I don't know, but we'll see. Yeah, I haven't seen the use case for it, but that doesn't mean it's not out there. Okay. So how do you typically use it yourself? Like, for example, me, like I... I mean, okay, whenever I'm like, uh, need to do something like quick with data and I prefer to do it in SQL, obviously, and I don't want like to load the data, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like that could be like great, right? And 
Yeah, you can do that like with quite a lot of data. Also, it's not like it can scale like pretty well, like on your laptop. But how do you use it? What's some interesting use cases for you? I use it the exact same way. So I'm working on a little like side project to do entity resolution and benchmarking different methods using it. And so DuckDB is great for that because I have a couple of files on my laptop. I want to read them in. I don't want to spin up Postgres. Perfect. I'll load it into DuckDB. I can run some SQL and do some aggregation on top of it. That works pretty well. That's really the only use case I have. But I've heard of other people doing more important things with it. So I've heard of people using it as part of an ETL pipeline, but they now deploy it to production to speed up some type of transformation they're doing. Yeah. And so, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? It's just another tool in your toolbox. Yeah. But for me, it's really been, I guess, just like local development and playing around and not having to spin up more infrastructure to, to play with things. Yeah. Why do you think that it has created so much noise in the market? The reason I'm asking you is because like recently I was thinking because I had like to download ClickHouse and around like with ClickHouse. And to be honest, like ClickHouse doesn't have that much of a different experience for working with local data, right? Like it's single binary, you download it, like has a lot of tooling, like amazing support, like for importing data and like creating the data, amazing performance to like, you can do similar things like as you do with DuckDB, but okay, ClickHouse has been known for different kind of use cases. I've never kept anyone okay. saying, let me download it to do something locally, right? But so why DuckDB? What did they do so right? And they create this kind of perception in the industry. I have no idea, to be honest. And I'm always scared to speculate because they'll come after me. I don't know. I mean, people love it. So they must be doing something right. Like it's, it is a genuinely useful tool. Like Pegasus mm -hmm. uses it, Bode uses it. Companies are using it in their production application as part of middleware. That totally makes sense to me. It's nice having a way to read a bunch of CSV and Parquet files on your computer. Mm -hmm. That was traditionally a little bit harder to do. But it's fast. So, I mean, it's great. I don't know why it became so popular and so loud and yeah, I don't know. It just took the world by storm. I can't speculate on why, but I'm happy for that. Yeah. Okay. Which brings me like to my last question before I give the mic back to marketing and content around these technologies, right? There's a lot of education that needs to happen. Like we need to educate people how to tools but maybe i don't know even with duck to be probably they did something right with distribution of the technology which always includes marketing there somehow maybe one day we'll learn what's what's the magic there uh but you've been also like in you, you've worked at Hitats, right and like at Hitats, again you were like part of a team and the product that was new in the industry like reverse ETL was like something like that point so based on your experience, like what are like the, some really good tools for reaching out to people out there and helping them to understand the value of the tools and 
become better data engineers or data scientists or whatever on like when they have to work with data. Yeah, I don't know if it's really cool, but I mean, the way I always look at it is like, where are you, where are the people who you think would benefit from your product? And then if you truly believe that your product has value, how do you teach them about that value at the end of the day? That's all it is. That's all I think marketing is. And when viewed from that lens, like it makes it easier to think of how you, like, what are the possible steps you could do? So I can walk through how I thought about it at high touch. At high touch, I knew what the product did. It helped move data, for example, from your warehouse to Salesforce. That's one very simple use case, right? And I knew who benefited from that. It was people like me who used to have to write this code manually, usually through the Python integration. And so having a good understanding of what the value is and who it's for, marketing becomes very easy. It's okay, well, if people like me would benefit from this, how do I reach them? Well, do they know what reverse ETL is? And in the early days, the answer was no. So we had to educate. And so a lot of my work was spent around educating people on what it is, what the value is, what it means, why it's different from X, Y, and Z. Once we kind of had a good bit of like understanding of what that was. So the next question is how do we make people aware of our company, High Dutch, right? And that's a little bit harder and there's no shortcut. It's just to me, just like constantly creating content to bring people to our website that data people would find genuinely useful. And so I would just write about things I was curious about for the most part, or things I had learned. I think those two things are great places to start. And so I would create content on things like the difference between airflow, dynasty, and prefect. Something I've always wondered. And if you go and Google it, you won't find much. You'll find, you know, marketing pieces to talk about them a little bit. But no one's actually tried all three and written about it. So that's what I did. I downloaded them all three and wrote about it. And that became a great source of traffic to our website because it was the only thing that had covered all those things. And so that's usually the way I think about it. It's like, how do I generate something useful for people that I have a unique perspective on that hasn't been done before? If you can do that, then hopefully that will bring people to your website. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Eric. Microphone is your second. Excited? Oh, I'm so Wait. excited. I am so excited. Oh, yeah. Was that, a, was that to me your bedroom? We're both excited. At least I hope so. I'm really interested to know, Pedrim. So you are now consulting, you know, which is relatively recent. And you came out of doing sort of data and marketing at, you know, venture-backed, most recently a venture-backed data company, right? So, you know, the marketing vortex, you know, in the data world, you know, in for venture-backed companies for data vendors is, you know, it's pretty intense. I mean, that's what I live in every day. But now you're consulting, right? So you have companies that bring you problems and you need to figure out the best way to solve them. 
Have you had any changes of perspective going from the world of venture-backed data vendor to, you know, a company is paying me to help them solve, you know, pretty specific problems? I think I quickly realized how far ahead we all are of our customers. Mm. When I started to talk to them, the modern data stack, the number of companies out there that are actually implementing it is very small. Number of companies who know about it are small. Number of companies who know about DBT is actually quite small. You talk to most of these companies, they don't even have data teams at the time. Now, yeah. maybe that's selection bias because you're talking to me, but a lot of companies out there don't have a data team. They have people who know what they want and have found ways to get it for better or for worse, often for worse, which is again, why they're talking to me. So I think we have been in a bubble. I certainly have been in a bubble over the past couple of years. And I think a lot of our spenders are kind of guilty of that. Pushing a system that's actually pretty complex out to people. And not to say that it's not useful or good. It's the same one I will implement a lot of the time. But I think we often forget how far ahead we are and where we need to start a conversation with people. Like, we probably can't talk to people about the merits of, like, data diffing within a data warehouse when they don't even know that they need a data warehouse, right? So a lot of my work is really going back to basic and trying to figure out like, how do we teach people what this data stack is all about without confusing them? That's already hard enough. And then probably the harder thing is to show them what the actual value is of doing all this work because mm. If at the end of the day, you put in all this work and all they get is a report, well, they were already getting that before they started talking to you. And so hopefully you can say, well, what you were doing before served this need, but let's talk about not just doing what you were doing before, but all the things that we can start to do now that your data is centralized. We can bring in data from three, four different systems. We can start to be really nuance about how we look at attribution and we can mm -hmm. look at all the way down to your product level to see where different channels interact with each other when people want to activate or create revenue. That's when I think people can start to kind of see what's actually possible data. What they come to you is, Hey, I need to know how many customers I have. And if you just sort of stop the conversation there and give them that with the data warehouse, it's like, great. Why did I pay this much money for this? Right. 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 I could have kept doing that for what you charged me. But if you could start to bring the boat, it's around, like the whole point of this is to actually bring data in from different systems that start answering questions that you weren't able to answer before. And they're actually going to give you insight to your business. Then I think like you, you can start to tell them on this idea. And that's where most customers are. They're nowhere near where we are today, where we're talking about version control and data modeling and observability and all this stuff. No one has any clue what any of that stuff means. Okay, last question. And I would love for you to speak to our listeners who are an 
of course, with podcast analytics, it's really difficult to know how large this subset is that. I already have millions of viewers. Millions. <laughs> millions and millions. How do you break out of that bubble, right? If you are working in a context, I'll try to broaden it. If you're working in a context where you're sort of in the data echo chamber and that's your job day to day, how do you break out of the bubble? That's a good question. Get off Twitter and get off Slack and go meet real company. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, how do you talk to people who aren't even talking to you? I think it's a tough thing to do. I don't know. Talk to people who aren't in data as much as you can. When you go outside, talk to people and ask them what questions you're asking with data, how they're solving the same problems that you're solving. Because at the end of the day, these people are doing this stuff. Like I've seen people do marketing attribution in Salesforce. I have no idea how it's done, but I know it's a pretty common thing that people do. And it's like, well, they don't have a warehouse. How are they doing this stuff? So the more you can talk to people outside of the data world, the better I think it will be all of us. Yeah. Such, such sage wisdom. Pedram, this has been really wonderful show. It's flown by and we'd love to have you back on soon. This was great. Happy to come back anytime. My takeaway, Costas, which has been a recurring theme throughout the show, even from some of the very, very early episodes, is that generally keeping it simple is the best policy. And if you hear, you know, Pedram, who is probably more than anyone, you know, familiar with the most cutting edge tooling in the data space, you know, even, you know, stuff that very small startup companies are building. You know, he picked a couple of core pieces of technology and said, this is what you need. And when you start to break it with scale, then you've hit the jackpot. <laughs> You know, and so when you talk to practitioners, I just love how simple it is for them. They don't use fancy technology or sorry, they don't use fancy terminology to describe technology. They just talk about the utility of various things that are required of them in their job. And it really is pretty simple. And so I guess, you know, per some of the conversation that we had about with them, can get really tricky to navigate all the marketing terminology. And I'm, of course, someone who's creating that problem actively in the data space. Yeah, yeah. I love the simplicity. Yeah, I think Pedron has like a very pragmatic approach to things, which is, first of all, it's like super valuable for someone who's doing his job of being a consultant, right? Because at the end, if you are a consultant, one of the biggest values that you can deliver to your customer is go well the Kai and help them like focus to what really matters for them and make the right choices, right? So it's pretty difficult like to avoid this FOGO hype, you know, like it's everywhere, yeah. like, yep. you know, like a cheerleader of something. So it's I don't know. I really enjoyed the conversation with him because it was very 
you know, down to earth and very pragmatic. And so, yeah, like he talked about like the real problems and when you have the problems and when you don't have the problem. So I really enjoyed the conversation with him and he should be writing more and communicating this style of talking about what's going on in the industry because it's super useful and it's missing. Now I think like we need more of voices. I agree. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't, tell a friend, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.